something outside. What is that? old-timers with Thomas. This is a show that I've been wanting to do for some time, and what we're going to be discussing is all of the the greats that came before the researchers to this day that uh, we can really learn a lot about if we take time to learn about what they contributed to this whole enigma of Sasquatch. We're going to be talking about Renee DeHendon, John Green, Dr. Krantz, Peter Byrne, Dr. Bendernagel, Titmus. We're going to cover, uh, and more, but we're going to cover those guys exclusively uh, to make sure we don't miss anyone. We will also be d- discussing Larry Lund. We'll talk about Tom Slick Expedition, all, all sorts of things that we're going to be delving into. Um, I'm really stoked about this and even more excited to say that my guest co-host is Thomas Steenberg from Canada. Let me go ahead and welcome him onto the show. Thomas, how are you? I'm doing fine, Julie. How are you? I'm pretty good. Excellent. uh, Cooking down here in the, the south, I hear that you guys are, you have a heat wave up there where you're at. No, it's high summer up here, beautiful, hot, humid, but hey, enjoy it while it lasts. It'll be cold enough, wet enough, soon enough for long enough. Yeah, that's exactly right. (laughs) So listen, I appreciate you joining me for the show. Um, For our listeners, we'll we'll probably be doing at least one episode a month, and uh, it'll be broadcast at about the same time every month. If we have time to do more than one show, we will do that and share that with you. And I think it's proper to begin our our series with my, one of my personal favorite investigators from from years gone by and that is Rene DeHendon. Now, if you're not familiar with Rene DeHendon, I strongly suggest that you look into him, do some investigating and um, on the website and, and find out about his history, um, his contributions. But there's some things that you won't find on the Internet about Rene. And he was very, very colorful. <laughs> um, he had a very strange sense of humor from what I have heard 
from people who knew him. Um, a little bit dry at times, but he was quite the character. So before we delve too much further into that, though, I, I want to talk about Thomas for a moment. Uh, for those who may not be as familiar with you as um, a lot of us are, Thomas, can you tell everybody how you got started in this this whole Bigfoot phenomenon and, and what what type of investigative stuff you've done over the years? Well, uh, I'm I, I guess I'm now considered one of the old guys and. Mm-hmm. I really, I, I guess I'm considered one of the old guys now because I never thought I'd hear that. But I started in the in the mid to late 1970s. But my interest in the subject was perked at a very young age when I was a little kid, uh, growing up with my sister in the 60s. Uh, basically, a combination of lo- reading a little article in a hardcover Reader's Digest book on the Loch Ness monster uh, 80 times. And bugging my parents to uh, to get more information on it, and they gave me a library card. And of course, I knew at a very young age I was never going to move to Scotland. So I uh, started reading other books on other subjects, and uh, there was this thing in Western Canada called the Sasquatch, and I started reading up on all that. But I think what really did it was one school night when I should have been asleep in bed, coming down into the living room, and my parents were watching a movie on the old black-and-white TV, and I expected to get a blast from my father. Hey, get back up there, boy, you're supposed to be, you know, that kind of thing. But instead, he, he says, hey, the lad's interested in this kind of thing. We should let him watch this. My mother goes, oh, no, 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 he can't watch this. He'll have nightmares, blah, blah, blah. But my dad won the argument, and I'm sure he's regretted that ever since. And uh, what, what they were watching was that old Hammer horror film uh, starring Peter Cushing called The Abominable Snowman in the Himalayas. Do you remember that movie? Oh, Lord. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, what a I, classic. That did something. It was just Sasquatch from then, then on. And when I did my time in the Canadian Army, I got I originally wanted to be posted to a battalion in Vancouver Island, but the closest I could get was uh, Calgary, Alberta, 1st Battalion, PBCLI. And, and in my, in my time's off, I, I just looked at the Rocky Mountains there, which I saw for the first time in my life, and I said, well, you know, no one's ever built a wall between British Columbia and Alberta. If they've been seen in eastern B.C., they have to be seen here, too. So I took out ads in the local press, and the wording was quite simple. Sasquatch, if you believe you've had a sign of this creature, please contact Thomas Steenberg and the phone number. And I didn't expect much result. I, I swear to God, my phone, my phone was ringing on a daily basis. Wow. Yeah, and that's and, really and what year was that? Yeah, yeah, and I met the, the late Professor uh, Vladimir Markotic, and he kind of took me under his wing, and we became sort of like unofficial partners. He did the academic stuff, and I did the field research for him. And uh, with, along with Vladimir, I, I met the late John Green, I met the late Rennie Dehan, and I met the late Grover Kratz, I met the late Robert Titmus, and I did uh, a lot of work over the years and research uh, with all these gentlemen. Wow. And uh, I miss them a lot. Because you're a wealth of information, (laughs) and we Uh need to get get that stuff out of your head and and get it recorded. So this is going to be a blast. Well, you uh, so what year with... was this that you started your investigation, when you did the ad in the paper? What year was that? 1978. 1978, okay. I, I huh. actually ran it for a long time. 
it was a lot wow. cheaper to do ads for certain things in Alberta in those days. So I actually ran it for a long time, yep. Okay. Yep. Yeah, go ahead. You guys were investigating and... and oh, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, you know, we, 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 we looked at the things. And uh, I, I think I first met John Green in, uh, uh, when I stopped by his place in, uh, oh, I think May of 1980. Uh, just arrived and gave a phone call, knocked on his door. He invited me in. I told him who I was and... He could have slammed the door in my face, but he didn't, because I'm sure he's had, he, he dealt with a lot of people that, you know, seemed interested for a weekend or so, and then you never heard from him again. But we talked talked the whole afternoon, and uh, he showed me his Alberta material, because that's where I was at the time. And I think he was just uh, happy to have a new contact on the east side of the Rocky Mountains, because that's where I was uh, based to right up until 2002. And I think I met Renee uh, just a couple of years later in 1982 when he was in Alberta. He gave me a call and suggested I come out to see him as he was uh, staying at a campground in Lake Louise in that uh, green uh, green camper truck he drove around for years. I remember that, the, yep. Called it the Green Hornet. Yeah, so I went up there. Uh, and found the found the truck, and I went in. I knocked on I knocked on the wall. I said, uh, uh, "Ready to hit Thomas Steamer head?" And I hear this voice come out from the truck, "Hook ass!" <laughs> <laughs> and I was beginning of <laughs> 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 relationship with ready to hit. <laughs> wow! <laughs> and you do you imitate him so well. <laughs> Well, yeah, you know, I've, I've, I've had a lot of practice. <laughs> because there's one thing about Rene, you never forgot him. <laughs> oh, you never I can imagine. Him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I like to think well, one of the reasons I got to know all these guys and um, I got to do work with them all, and I still can't figure this out, is, I mean, half the time you couldn't get set these guys in the same room together. You know what I mean? They just... At times they despised each other, and um, but I was able to do work and be friends with all of them, and the others never held it against me. And to this day, I really don't know why, because I know in other cases with other people, if Rene found out he was talking to Titmus, uh, Titmus wouldn't have anything to do with him. And if Titmus found out you ever had anything to do with Rene, Titmus didn't want to have anything to do with him. But they never held it against me, and I can't figure out why. I mean, Granny always used to give me the third degree whenever we got together. And I was like, oh, what did that think about this or that? You know, and I go, <laughs> I go, I'm not going to tell you in it. <laughs> I'm, oh, not gonna, that I'm not going to tell you what him he a little said, bit. and I won't tell him what you said. And, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, and uh, he just, uh, I guess, accepted it. You know, I, I, I mean, I love the late Rene Dan, and, and I'd like to say he probably loved me sometimes. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So when you sat down with him the first time, um, the, when you went to his the Green Hornet and you sat down with him, how long were you were you there? A couple the hours day. or? No, the whole okay, day. And then we day. went around around. Uh, Rene had a great sense. He had other interests too. He liked he liked looking at 
old buildings and things like that. And when he wasn't doing Sasquatch, he was interested in history. He was fascinated by history. I mean, he was, you could almost call him uh, a professor on, on, um, the German invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941, Operation Barbarossa. He knew the dates and the units involved and things like that. It fascinated him because before he moved to Canada, he did his uh, conscripted time in the Swiss Army, uh, which was always an army based on heavily armed neutrality. Rennie was born in 1930. Okay? Yeah. And he was born in a place called Wigus. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, Wigus, Switzerland. Wigorous Switzerland. I'm not sure if I pronounced that right. And he ended up almost, his ch- he had a miserable childhood. It was almost like he was given away to work on this farm where the owners treated him virtually as a live-in slave. He wow. Had to, he had to sleep and live in the barn, and he only got to come into the main house on Christmas Day for the for whatever the Christmas dinner was, and then he had to go out back out to the barn again. Oh, so wow. He, See, I didn't yeah, know so that. So when he came to Canada in 53, he just never looked back. Oh, I bet not. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, he had a miserable time growing up. Uh, maybe that was probably uh, explains a little about his uh, rather abrasive nature, if he really yeah, got to know him. Good. But uh, he... he uh, he had a miserable childhood. I, I, he, he would tell me about it, and um, I just, I just couldn't believe what I was hearing. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was bad. Yeah. Um, bad. They didn't like physically beat him or anything. They just treated him like a dog. You know. Jeez. As a boy growing up, and uh, when he left uh, to immigrate to Canada, he was a young man looking for adventure. And uh, he ended up working at uh, getting a job at a dairy farm in the Calgary region of Alberta. And this is 1953 now. He's a new immigrant. He wants some adventure in his life. He doesn't know what he's going to want, really wants to do with himself. He's a young man. He's not very highly educated. He never did win a, go above uh, the Swiss equivalent of public school. I think he dropped out something like uh I don't know what we would call the fifth grade or something like that. He was never highly wow. educated, but boy, he had a, a logical mind. And uh, he was sitting down there for dinner with the uh, the, the dairy farmer, oh, whose name I can't recall just offhand, who had a dairy farm just west of Calgary there. So he would work in the, the dairy farm, seeing those beautiful Rocky Mountains every day. And one day he was sitting down uh, at the table with the, with the dairy farmer, and they just happened to have the CBC radio on, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. And there was a story that came over the radio talking about a daily, I think it was the Daily Mail expedition, going to the Himalayas to search for the Yeti, or the abominable snowman that was commonly called in the press back then. Mm-hmm. And Randy just turned to the dairy farmer and said, geez, wouldn't it be an interesting thing to get involved in something like this or to go along on something like this? And the dairy farmer shrugged his shoulders and said, oh, hell, you don't have to go all the way over there to look for hairy things like that. They got something like it in British Columbia. <laughs> That's switch with Rene. And uh, he just pestered the farmer, and before you know it, within a year, he's, he's coming to uh, western uh, British Columbia, learning everything he had. He didn't know anything, so any of the, even the wild early stories uh, piqued his interest, stories he would now 
know were complete nonsense. And he ended up showing up in, in 55 at Harrison Hot Springs uh, when uh, the B.C. Bicentennial was going on. And uh, Harrison uh, was going to spend a, a, a grant that all the small towns are getting to spend on something for the, for the 100th anniversary of the province. And uh, Harrison announced that they were going to use their money to do, rather jokingly, uh, to organize a Sasquatch hunt. Which of course drew Rennie like a magnet, mm-hmm. and he ended up walking into I think the Agassiz Harrison Advance newspaper, which was uh, uh, I'm not sure if John Green owned it at one time. I'm not sure if he owned it at that moment, and that's how he first met Renee Hinn. And John basically said, "I first spent my hours with Renee trying to talk him out of it because I thought the Sasquatch was nothing but a legend of mythology." <laughs> oh boy! Yeah. Yeah, so it was really Rene that got John's bug going on the whole thing. Yeah. I'll be done. Yeah, that's, See, that's another thing I didn't know. Uh-huh. I'm learning so much already, and we're only 20 minutes in. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, oh, it was incredible. Yeah, yeah, Rene was a colorful character, but when you got on his bad side, he never forgot it. You know, if you did something to get under his skin, he never let it go. You'd always remember. Even if he gave you for it, he'd still throw it in your face every now and then. If you got something on him, too, he really hated it when you brought it back up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. Now, I know that, that he and, and Dr. Krantz had their issues. Well, uh, the thing with Rene is he never really, through his experience trying to get the scientific community even interests in the subject, and they just basically, you know, um, dismissed the whole thing out of hand and wouldn't even look at anything. Uh, to Rene, he didn't understand the politics of science. He didn't understand the system. The only thing he knew about science is what he saw in the movie, some guy in a white coat who would do it, stop at <laughs> nothing to find out the truth, right? Right, supposedly, uh, right. The reality is, every time someone discovers something new, some powerful professor is upset because he just made his book obsolete. So, right. Um, you know, and uh, and they, their dismissive attitude towards it over and over and over again frustrated them to the point that he, he just had an absolute, um, I wouldn't call it hate, but a a distaste of anyone with a Ph.D. You know, he uh-huh. always, the worst thing that can happen to you is you get a goddamn Ph.D. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he, just, he just had no time for them. And it, after the Patterson film happened, he, he didn't bother and, and seeing their lack of attitude there. He took it to the Soviet Union and had the Russians look at it. But afterwards, later on, he he was mad at them for some reason. He wouldn't talk to them anymore. So. Oh my! Yeah. Uh, no. So he he I over there with a copy of this the Patterson Gimlin film and show it to some doctrines in Russia. Yeah, yeah. Porsche uh, version of all those guys. The uh, wow. Well, the the um, Society for the Study of Hominology. 
Okay. Basically, they, they, they were looking into uh, 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 Russian reports of something similar that they called the Almista. So he took the Patterson film over there, and they really took a good look at it and gave their opinions. Yeah. And what was their opinions? Well, they, they concluded that they thought that, that the subject in the Patterson-Gimlin film of October 12, 1967 was probably a real creature. Wow. Unlike the North American counterparts. They they took it, but Rennie thought later on that they, they, uh, many of them were awful gullible uh, based on their conclusions on other things. And I have to admit, I, I have to agree with them because I've met a lot of those guys too, like Dimitri and, and Igor, and uh, I've met them too, and, and they seem to be, um, in my opinion, very easily swayed by stuff that they should just dismiss. Like, you remember the Carter Coy farm a number of years ago? This woman in Tennessee said she had Sasquatch coming around her yard, and and uh, she was feeding them garlic and everything. She had names for them and all that. But she could never produce a picture, but she'd always take a picture of a stick it dropped or something like that. You know, uh, Igor fell yeah. for that story of line and sinker. He thought it was true. And um, I thought, how could you fall for this? Dimitri the same way when he came up here. We picked him up at the airport, myself and John Green and Christopher Murphy. We met him at the airport in Seattle to go down to the Willow Creek Symposium in 2003, and we got talking about that, and he believed that Carter Coy Farm stuff, hook, line, and sinker. Hmm. I spent most of the car drive down there asking him why. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, Rene, that traded Rene a lot. He couldn't understand that, and... Uh, uh, but of course, Rene was already gone by this point because Rene, he passed away in September of 2001 after a short and fierce battle with prostate cancer, and, um, and so Rene never got to go down to that Willow Creek symposium. And believe me, if he had, it would it would have been a zoo. Oh my! <laughs> I I just can't even imagine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> People still be talking about that. Oh, yeah. I mean, you I'm know, sure. you know, a lot of people, there's a lot of stuff I know that, um, well, you know, everyone knows that when they, him and Green first met, they were kind of like unofficial partners. And June Green used to say, it's so sad. And he, she showed me some of the, the Greens had a lot of home movies. And you'd see Rene and his and his ex-wife, Wanja, visiting them at camp, uh, family get-togethers and stuff like that. They were really good friends. But that all fell apart in the late '60s. Uh, just before, uh, well, I can. I guess it's safe to say this now, and you're going to. This is going to shock a lot of people. And I basically got this information from John because Renee never even admitted. But when they, when the Blue Creek Mountain tracks were found down in Northern California, John Green, Renee, uh, and, a, and a fellow who owned a tracking dog. Uh, named Moffat flew down there on a, on a small plane uh, piloted by a man named Keith Cazera. And they went all the way down there to take a look at these tracks. And there were hundreds of them. Do you remember the Blue Creek Mountain tracks of mm -hmm. uh, yes. September, uh, late August, yeah. early September of 1967, just a few uh, weeks before the Patterson Gilman film? Right, yes. These tracks they called Roger. And they left a message for Roger because Roger and Bob are in the Mount St. Helens region. And that got Roger to go down there 
because Roger originally wanted to get footage of footprints. He, uh, he wasn't. He'd never imagined he'd get a a um, footage of the animal itself. Though no doubt he was always hoping that someday he would. And that resulted in him and Bob going down to that area and they're, them getting the film of October 20, 1967. But a lot of people don't know this. While they were down there looking at those tracks, they invited, they invited, they got the word up to the the museum in Victoria, B.C., and a fellow named, a professor named Don Abbott came down. He drove down to look at the tracks, and he introduced to them a new method of preserving tracks. And... Um, uh, by spraying them, and you could lift the track right out of the ground. But for some reason, uh, on one of these outings, they all got piled in the vehicle, and they left the area to go somewhere, and I'm not really sure where they went or why, and they left Rene behind. And Rene was stuck out there for something like six hours in a scorching hot day. And when they came back, Rennie took a shotgun, he shoved it at John Green's face and said, you ever do that to me again, I'll blow your damn head off. Holy cow. <laughs> right, I got that. Uh, it was John Green who told me that, and now John is gone now, so I guess it's safe to, to tell everybody about that, yeah. Wow. <laughs> Rennie that... stuck this gun in John Green's face and said, you ever leave me out here like that again? I'll blow your damn head off. Oh, my or God. Something, or something to that effect. Wow. But needless to say, the two men didn't really talk a lot in the rest of that little trip. And as a matter of fact, John Green had Rene fly back with the pilot in the plane because he was becoming such a pain in the ass. <laughs> and uh, and John ended up driving back with Don Abbott and Don Abbott's car. I'll be doggone. See that. And even though I they talked no. every now and then and stuff like that, uh, the two men didn't get along after that. And you can understand why. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. wow. So Renee yeah. had sort of a temper. Oh, yeah. He could have. Yeah, he could oh, have. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I, you'll wow. see a lot of the big mountain footage, the pilot, Keith Kazera, carrying this shotgun around. That's the gun Randy stuck at John Green's face. <laughs> That's amazing. I had no clue. And I'm Nobody sure most did. people did. Yeah, this is uh this is the first time I've ever told that to anybody. Wow. Am I super privileged or what? That is the most amazing story I've heard yet. I just Yeah, yeah. I, I can regret it doing see it. See him but, doing you know, that though because Yeah, he was oh. just really, really mad. Uh, I I think he said uh Otto wasn't even a challenge in the goddamn thing. But you know, he, oh my he God. never even really admit he ever did it. But John said, I wasn't going near him after that. <laughs> that was the way it was. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. John course, probably yeah, thought he lost between. his damn mind. Yeah, there was a lot of bad blood even years earlier than that in the original uh, Pacific Northwest expedition in the late 50s down there. When when Sasquatch got its popular American name Bigfoot, right? Uh, uh, between uh, Titmus and DeHinden, who they couldn't stand each other, they, they and they hated each other from day one, and they never really got over it. Really, wonder why? I have no idea. It doesn't make sense to me. I think Randy wanted to be the one to find the Sasquatch, so he's very suspicious of somebody. 
who came along wanted to get into this too because Randy was kind of like, well, this is my stuff. What are you doing here? And uh, I think he was always very suspicious of people's motives. Randy, mm. Randy had an ego. Yeah, he had an ego. Hell of a hell of a guy. I loved him, but he had an ego. Yeah. <laughs> that is that's amazing. Yeah. yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, let, let's talk a little bit about the um, the Titmus and and. Renee situation now had they ever gone out in the field together other from the uh, other than the original Pacific Northwest expedition I do not believe so okay so after that that was yeah the Tom Slick expedition the Pacific Northwest expedition other than that time they were together and they really first met no I don't do not believe uh uh, they ever went in the field together. As a matter of fact, they would avoid each other as much as possible wow. because uh, to Titmus, Rene was that little Swiss oddball, and <laughs> Titmus was that annoying titmouse. You know, this this never ever ever got along. That is so crazy. Yes, and, it and is. Because Rene maybe was thinking he was trying to to come in a little bit on his turf. I saw Rene, and all the years I knew him, I only heard Rene say one positive thing about Titmus one time, and that's when the when the when when the uh, PG film was being shown at Al Diatli's home, and they all went to see it. You know that following Sunday, he he said Titmus did the right thing. He went to the film site. I should have done that. Demis didn't get down there for ten, till ten days later, but he didn't go to try to see the film or anything. He went to the film site and he looked at the site and looked at the tracks, and he cast ten of them in succession. Rene always regretted not going immediately to the film site. Did he say why he didn't go immediately to the film site? Well, he went to he see just the film. Get there he went to the film. Yeah, they all went up there. Rene was in San Francisco when the film was shot, and he okay. only heard about it. John Green sent a message to him at the motel he was staying at. So despite the gunplay and the, the the end of their partnership, they still communicated to each other every now and then. And, and something that important, I can see. Something important happened. Something yeah. important happened. Uh, come, and he contacted him. He told him they're going to show the place, uh, the film at Aldi Atlee's place on Sunday night. And Rennie went up there. And, of course, Green was there. And uh, uh, but Titmus was not, and Jim McLaren, I believe, was there, and of course Roger was there. Gimlin was not there because he was exhausted. He was doing all the driving. He was trying to catch up on some sleep, and that's where they saw the film. And he always regretted also that he didn't look, take a closer look at all the film packaging, which was just sitting there on a table because all these questions and the fifty years following coming up about where was the film developed, who did it, why, it was all written right there on the packaging, and all the other old people, all anyone had to do was go look at it, but, you know, no one at the time thought it was important. Yeah, exactly, I mean, yeah. who would have, I mean, that was the first time that anyone had ever produced a film that supposedly had one of these creatures on it, so to them... Well, the boys, what was the in the boys was their main this concern. Was the beginning of the end, they thought they had the evidence. They thought that they thought, even though they were all disappointed in the film itself, because basically you just see this small figure 
walking away, and it turns to look at either Roger or Bob, and it continues on its way for a few seconds. They thought, well, this will probably get the ball rolling, and this whole thing will be over within a matter of weeks. And and, and the reception, other than the, the showing in uh, in British Columbia, at the University of British Columbia, a few weeks later, the, the, the signing community just seemed to throw the thing out without even bothering with it. And that just confused Well, yeah, the they sure of, did. Uh, yeah. Matter of fact, it was uh, Rene and John both thought they were being a little successful and in getting interested in the British Columbia government to sponsor a proper search for this animal up here in B.C., but after the scientists, uh, so-called anthropologists and zoologists, all got together to look at the film at the showing at the University of British Columbia, and they were so negative about it that the government just said, nope, not getting involved in this. Oh, wow. Carson so they're, they ruined. Ruined it. They, <laughs> That it wasn't a real Sasquatch. Yeah. yeah. They said, as far as most of them were concerned, some were impressed with it, but most of them, uh, overwhelmingly, most of them said, oh, it's, it's got to be a guy in a suit. It was basically, there is no Sasquatch, we know about it, so it has to be a guy in a suit. <laughs> and that was yeah. what year? Was that right after the film came out? Seven, yeah. Yeah, later on, 1967, 68. Remember the film okay, happened so on 1967. Yeah. Okay, so I'm wondering to myself what costume they were thinking someone was wearing well, because back then they, they, they didn't was, have any just, type of. Yeah, you know, they looked at for five minutes, and say, "Oh, it's a guy in a suit." Huh. No one explained why. We asked them to say, "Okay, why do you think it's a guy in a suit?" It's a guy in a suit. Guy in a suit. And I would like for them to have um, come up with what t- what type of suit that was and who would have made it. Um, I know there was some talk about a, a man having made it and that had a costume shop in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is not too far from me, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, he claimed that Patterson called him and asked him to send him an ape suit just a couple of weeks before that, that was seen on that tape. That would have been that guy who did all those costumes back then who later, uh, oh, what was his name? It's gone out of my head. Um, it sounds like a cigarette. <laughs> yeah, and he said... Um, oh, why have I... Oh, my mind's gone blank. I can't remember his name just offhand. Yeah, I can't remember it either, and that's horrible. I guess I'm showing my age. But, yeah, he said that he made that suit and that... Well, um, a lot of people. Have. Yeah. Um, oh, I can't believe I forgot his name, but he did a lot of gorilla costumes back in those days. Philip Morris. That's right, Philip Morris. Philip there Morris. you go. That's, he just came back. I opened the vault there. Uh, my hit, awesome. my hinges in my brain are getting rusty because I'm becoming. <laughs> yeah, Philip Morris. So he had that uh, costume. Well, he uh, says he. Or. I don't think damn thing. He had nothing to do with the parish of Gimel film, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he tried to recreate the Paris and film for that silly little thing that National Geographic was doing about 10 years ago, and they actually had Bob Paramus wear Philip Morris's suit, and I guess it was so ridiculous they decided not to use any of the footage because they said, hey, uh, you know, this Morris guy did a better job in 67 based on nothing than he's doing right now based on his own suit. So. Wow. Yeah, so, uh, no, I, Phil Morris uh, was basically a carny. He do. Uh, he was, I think, uh, he did a lot of these, um, 
you know, Zana, the ape woman, transforms into a gorilla before your eyes, you know, and the lights would fade. (laughs) (laughs) The girl would disappear, and all of a sudden this guy in this raging gorilla costume would rush to the bars, making everybody jump back. (laughs) Way back back in the... Wow, the good old days of of entertainment before all these television shows. It's amazing uh, that people uh, were so gullible. Yeah, 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 you know... And that book, The uh, Making of Bigfoot, in which the author uh, threw in a, that final chapter thinking he found the nail in the coffin, the Parrish and Gilman film, because he got Philip Morse to tell the story about how Parrish got the suit from him. I said, you, and I looked, I said, you just contradicted the previous 442 pages of your own book, because up until now you were saying Patterson made the film, made the suit himself out of dead horse hide. So... <laughs> So uh, no, no. Talking I, about Patterson made it out of horse hide, but then he at the the last chapter he talks about Philip Morris Philip making Morris. it. I mean, you could tell it was almost like it was a last minute add on to the book. Yeah, like wow, he, he, rabbit, and and it basically everything he was building up to the last chapter contradicted. Yeah. Uh, hmm. That's interesting why he would do that. Right, right. Of course, um, DeHinden, you might say he spent 1953, or 1950, yeah, 1953 to 1967 studying and researching the Sasquatch. 1967 up to the day he died, he spent most of his time studying the Patterson Gilman film. Because that was and the one hand. By God, he that was that's out. a real Sasquatch. Oh, he was credited. He wanted to prove that Parrison pulled this off, because he was convinced at first that it was it had to be a, a hoax. Because he didn't trust Roger Patterson. Here, surprise, shock, Almighty Rennie didn't like Roger either. Even though you'll find a lot of photographs of them together, he really? quite often re- he, he quite often referred to Roger Patterson as, as that little con artist. Oh my! Yeah, yeah. but uh, but after studying all these years, studying the film and going to the film site and doing all his measurements that n- nobody else was really doing, uh, he convinced he was convinced that the Parrish and Gimlin film was probably authentic, and he believed it. Wow! And for a long he had one of the only first-generation copies of the film from the camera original. He had a copy. John Green had a copy. Roger had a copy, of course. And if you did any, and and when uh, Roger passed away in '72, it was uh, Rennie DeHinden that went down to Bob Gimlin and basically her uh, nagged Bob to go after some rights because Gimlin really never got anything from the film, and Bob Young got so sick of the whole thing he basically sold whatever rights he had to Rennie for twenty bucks. Oh my. And, that's why Rene would, when any you ever did anything with the certain stills like 352 or stuff in a book or something, you didn't get his permission. He went after you for it. I I didn't know that. <laughs> I'm sitting here like what? Yeah, until yeah, Rene passed away, you never really saw the PG film shown too much, or or, or photographs appearing. If if they did, uh, Rene would probably contact the lawyer. Contact them. I mean, he he seemed to be suing, trying to sue people left, right, and center. I mean, he never won, as far as I know, but he sure made life a misery for a lot of people. Wow! Uh, just, just over the rights of that. So when film, that yeah. show, when that clip 
uh, was shown on the the TV series In Search Of. Did Renee give them permission to to play that on there? Is that how that works? Oh no, I think uh, see, Mrs. Patterson has the the most of the rights to the footage. Oh, okay. Patricia so that Patterson, was back. Rogers, and, okay. Rogers' widow. Yeah. As a matter of fact, Renee sued Mrs. Patterson to get certain rights to certain parts of the film. Okay. That's why I Mrs. Get Patterson didn't talk to Renee for a long time either. <laughs> it is amazing how much of you know things that revolved around this creature that we still haven't even proved exists how much of an effect that has on a lot of people's lives behind the scenes that people wouldn't even fathom. Oh, it could it could, it could be a, a new soap opera on television, you know. Affairs, Sasquatch question. And you hear the organ music. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess so, because it's like, oh, what? Hey, people think it's crazy today, and I like to say the Sasquatch field today more resembles an asylum that's being taken over by inmates, but even back in the old days, there was a lot more, in my opinion, proper and serious research. But the games and the personal wars and stuff, um, they were they were red hot and gone. Wow. <laughs> it was ridiculous, really. I would say. But, you know, I can see that, um, you know, after the Patterson film came out, so many people believed that that was actually a Sasquatch on that film that I'm sure they I can did. imagine uh, that the, um, the excitement ongoing, level was completely overwhelming. That's still the ongoing question. For the first 30 years, it was proved the Patterson-Gimlin film is real, and now, ever since then, the early 90s, it seems to be the other way around. Prove it's not. And they're trying, you know, uh, but they still haven't found the zipper. <laughs> Right, that I know they haven't been able to do that, and I know they had that. Uh, they did a special on TV, and Dr. Meldrum was a part of it, where they um, had an actor, and they did some uh, scientific things with him, with his um, the way he walked and the fluidness of his walk, and they put it in the computer and animated it, and they they discerned that someone could actually walk like that. With difficulty. Basically, it walks. Put it in simple terms, the creature in the Paris and Gimlin film walks like a person cross-country skis. Right, right. And, and, and it's a so very awkward thing to do. You can do it with practice, but it's an awkward thing to do. I mean, I still say the key to the Paris and Gimlin film is what they call the intermemorable index. And you explain that to somebody, they get this blank look on their face, and they said, oh, yeah, but what about this guy who said he wore the suit? So it goes in one year and out the other. You know, a human has well, what do you mean? A human has an intermemorial index. That's comparing the length of arm to length of leg, right? And a right. human has an intermemorial index of seventy-two because our legs are longer than our arms. Right. A chimpanzee has an intermemorial index of about one hundred eight. That's because they have massive arms but only small legs. A gorilla is even worse. It has an intermemorial index of about one hundred twenty to. 22 to 23, because they have huge arms and very small legs. The creature in the Pirates and Gimlin film has an inner man that's about 84 to 85, which means it's, it's got longer arms compared to the leg compared to human, but not nearly to the extent of a, a chimpanzee or a gorilla, which are, of course, quadrupeds. 
So the ratio of the arm length doesn't match what the normal human would be. Its its arms are bigger than ours and compared to the rest of its body, and especially the length of legs. Hmm. Well, maybe they just had arm extensions and gloves on the end of it. You look at that film, you can see the wrist moving, you can see the hand moving and things like that. No, it's not arm extensions. But, you know, it's the same debates have been going on about the PG, Patterson Goodman film, since the beginning, and they'll continue to go on. And because people can't find fault with the subject itself, they go into the surrounding matter. Why was Roger has stains on his pants here, but he didn't have stains on his pants there? Why is his one button on here not up there? Why does he have 5 o'clock shadow and he doesn't seem to have one in this shot? You know, I mean, just silly, unimportant nonsense. Right. Yeah, I've heard all yeah. kinds and, of crazy stuff. Yeah. Oh, Roger was a bad guy. I said, well, Roger wasn't a bad guy. Now, I didn't really know. I never met Roger Patterson personally. He died in 1972 of Hodgkin's disease. But what I have found out about him in the area of Yakima, where he, uh, where he basically lived his whole life, Roger was kind of thought of as, do you, do you ever remember the old Green Acres TV show? Oh, yeah, yeah. you remember a character called Mr. Haney? Yes. <laughs> Roger was kind of like that. Everyone liked him, but everybody knew, for God's sakes, don't give him any money because you'll never get it back. <laughs> <laughs> oh my! That's good. You, you'll you'll never get it back. He's a great, he's a nice guy and everything, but he rarely pays back any money. He never has to pay back. So <laughs> that's that's cute. I tell you, that is hilarious. Of course, Bob, who I've known well for over twenty five years, we're good friends. I mean, he's everybody. Uh, Honest Bob, I mean, if, if Patterson faked this movie, it was an absolute stroke of genius bringing Honest Bob along. Well, yeah, and that's—I always thought that if it's—if that was a hoax, I don't think that Gemlin was a part of that hoax. And I think that if you're going to hoax something, and you're going to have a man in a suit, and then you're going to have Bob Gemlin with a gun, not knowing it's a man in a suit. I mean that that could just lead to all kinds of that could well, have led yeah, to something really bad if that would have been a hoax. Yeah, I wouldn't do it. You know, no. and and but you know this is the same old stuff that gets debated over and over and over and over and over again. In my opinion, what's important about the Patterson given film is the subject itself. What is it that's on that film? Yeah, you know, all this surrounding stuff is absolute, just distractive nonsense. Uh, it doesn't make any sense, and you, you just, in my opinion, grasping for straws. Yeah, you know? yeah. You know, and, 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 and uh, that's what you do. And Renee spent here. He went to the film site. He just he wasn't interested in what somebody said about Roger Patterson. He wasn't interested in what somebody said about, you know, Roger Patterson's brother, Lyle Well, He didn't care about any of that. He went to the film site. He measured the, the distance from this log to that stump, this log tree to that thing. And he did such a a meticulous study of the film site, even though you could still recognize it. Right. And he preached a lot. I mean, there hasn't really been anything done like that since then, up until the, uh, uh, a fellow named Stuford, who owns the, uh, Bigfoot Books in Willow Creek, mm-hmm. and his group went down there and discovered that most of that stuff is still there. It's just yeah. buried in Yeah, Stephen and them, did, they did great work right. out there. 
Oh, he's done fantastic work. Yeah, yeah he's great. He's, great. Yeah. I love Stephen. Um, oh, yeah, I so call him <laughs> I know, Angel Eyes. Angel <laughs> Eyes. Hi, Stephen. <laughs> Shout out to Stephen. Um, now, when he went out there to do the measurements and all that, how long after the actual event took place was it before Rennie got there? I think 69-70, he went down there, and, of course, John Green went down there, and Jim McLaren went down there. I don't think Rennie was there at the same time, but Rennie went back. He kept going back all the time. Okay. A little bit more, a little bit more. He was there in 70. He was there in 72. He was there in uh, 75. He was there again. He was there when I was there in 83. I'll be done. And, yeah, and... Um, uh, and of course, he wasn't there in 2003 because he was he was gone. Right. But uh, but Bless he did more work on that film and more attention study on that film site than anyone I think could possibly imagine. But he wasn't. So he seriously. started out not believing that it was a real creature, and he ended up well, thinking it is a real creature. Of his life was getting very disheartened. He said he didn't know if he believed in the Sasquatch or not because, like I said, he spent a lot of time looking. He saw footprints, you know, and he interviewed a lot of witnesses, but he never saw anything himself. And that bothered him. It really bothered mm, him. I can imagine. Yeah, 40 yeah, years. And... Yeah. and so he really, at those last few years, especially when he was getting sick, he really expressed to me serious doubts about the whole thing. And uh, but he never totally gave up on it. But he he did doubt. It got to the point in the last ten years of his life he didn't want to interview witnesses anymore. He oh just, wow! All he wanted to hear about hear from is people who found footprints and that the footprints were still there to see. So he got kind of burned out on the whole thing because well, he wasn't seeing any uh, true evidence. Yeah, that's people just telling stories. You know, he says. They could be lying, they could be not. You still got the always debate which is which. You know, and Rennie just he just wanted to look at evidence, um, footprints, uh, things like that. And of course he always went out I mean, I mean the biggest problem Rennie uh had is I can tell you this, from the times I went out with him, he didn't like going out uh, out in the dark. <laughs> Oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah, he he was kind of. I don't think he enjoyed that going out in the dark. He, he had that beautiful camper truck. He has a green heart, and one when it got around midnight or something, he he shut himself in that and probably and wouldn't emerge until dawn. But uh, unless someone was with him, of course. But uh, that could right, right. Otherwise, yeah. But he didn't like going out after dark. But he didn't believe in any of this, you know tree hammering or screaming at the moon or anything like that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he saw everything you could possibly imagine. He liked to find a nice high OP observation point where you could see a long length of beachfront or riverbank area, you know, something where you're going to see something come out to the water. And he'd set up a right. line and his cameras there and his telescope, and he'd watch that for hours. And okay, so he years, actually set up blinds here. You can imagine he just never saw what he was looking for. Yeah. That's dedication. Yeah. Oh, there's no doubt about Rennie's dedication. I mean, like I said, before he passed away, 
you couldn't buy a book or see a documentary on this subject without seeing his name or seeing his face. And now, today, um, a lot of people who are just coming to this now don't even know who he is. Oh, I know, and that's that's one reason why I think it's important to do these shows, because we need to let people know that, um, just from what you just said, how much dedication some of these guys had back then. Oh, yeah. Oh, you're totally Let dedicated. where we're at now, and, and people who are out there in the field busting their butt, doing their due diligence, um, you know, Renee's, Renee and, and Titmus and Green, I mean, people just don't, coming in, don't really know the story about these guys, and and we're losing all the old-timers as the years go by, um, which is sad, but, I mean, that's part of life. I think it's important that we uh, document this stuff because this these shows aren't going anywhere. They will forever be on Monster X Radio, available to listen to. So, mm-hmm. I remember once talking to you on another Monster X Radio show, and you weren't the first to suggest this to me. I should do a book. Yes. Based on based on um, experiences with you know Renee, John, and Grover, and things like that, and I. Gee, I, I never really thought of that, but you know, maybe I should. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, and so now have you started that book? No, no, ma'am, I have not. <laughs> maybe this it. will give you the spark to do that, because yeah. I know I certainly would buy ten copies of it. <laughs> I guess well, it's no secret things, that I'm a big fan I of I can't really tell, because they're, uh, they're unbelievable. Uh and well, I, I revealed one for you tonight. What began, what really started the John Green Rennie De Hinden partnership dissolvement. <laughs> okay. But really, yeah, what that's... was the real cause? <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah, people are gonna that, yeah flip out when yeah. they hear that. <laughs> but it, that is it amazing. Was, he, he was a character. That's the only thing you could say. Um, Renee was Renee, and there's really no other way to describe him. There was no, and there's never going to be anybody like him again oh, in yeah. this field. Right. Ever. Now, there was a um, a series of television beer ad commercials up here in Canada. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and, oh, and, I'd and love those. And that on our blog, there. every once in a while, I'll, I'll post one of those uh, commercials. Well, you wouldn't believe send the it story. Out. They filmed those uh, commercials of a lake up here just uh, near Abbotsford. And they had Renee come up to do those commercials, and they had a whole trailer full of old clothes to wear, you know, to make them look more relic-like and, and, and rustic-like in the bush, uh, more outdoorsman, like, you know, Paul Bunyan-type clothing and stuff right. like that. Where That old trailer there, Renee just pulled in with his with his truck, and he got out wearing his normal everyday clothes. They took one look at him and say, "We can't improve on this." <laughs> <laughs> Send the trailer funny. away. We don't need it. We don't need <laughs> it. So all they did was give him a, a, a coconut hat to replace his Canadian Tire ball cap, and that that, that was it. <laughs> and Renee loved that, it. They, were, they had this girl follow him around, you know, getting him his coffee and stuff like that. So for a little while, they ran. Actually got to be treated like a like a like a movie star. <laughs> I think it really wow. Enjoyed. And those commercials were really funny and successful. 
And for some reason, Kokanee, just as it got real popular, pulled the plug on the whole thing and went to something else. Huh. Yeah, but that's, that's just a shame. Way and Renee got yeah, actually that, got that award happens, though. those commercials. A Best Actor yeah. Award. It came and took him to, and he was just being himself. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Now that's funny right there. And he's, he's like, just, what? <laughs> he's just yeah, being he's himself. Just being, and... He got an acting award. <laughs> That's crazy. Commercials. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> an acting award for just being himself. Yeah, yeah. That's so years going out in the bush uh, <laughs> in this Green Hornet truck with his little three-wheeler and his Honda ICC dirt bike. And he always took his cat along. And his cat was named oh, Cat. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. His cat was named Cat, K-A-T. <laughs> Didn't want to confuse it with other names, so he just called it Cat. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I love uh, it. So, yeah. So, oh, yeah, I miss him. I miss him a lot. And I can't believe it's been like, oh, gee, 2001. It's been 17 years since we've lost him. Yeah, that's. Man, time's just flying by anymore, it seems. The older we get, the quicker it goes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, Well, I'll tell I you what, Thomas. We're getting up to the the hour here. Um, we're going to keep really? the shows about an hour long. Okay. That way All we're right. going to have people wanting to come back to hear more. Because I know you and I, can we could talk for hours. So I think we'll go ahead and, and wrap up this this first edition. And was it ever... A doozy. <laughs> I don't know how we're going to top this, but we're going to. <laughs> so everybody needs to to join us again because this is this is going to be a roller coaster ride. <laughs> Thomas, I appreciate well, I you joining me, and um, yeah. we'll talk soon and get the next show scheduled, and and we'll continue this journey together. Roger that. Had a lot of fun. All right. Talk soon, Thomas. Thank you so much. And everybody, thank you for joining us for this exciting first edition of On the Shoulders of Giants, Talking Old Timers with Thomas. Make sure you uh, check our Facebook group out, um, Monster X Radio. Join the group. Uh, We have a lot of exciting things going on right now with our Monster Exclusive membership. You can get even more content, um, all kinds of things going on. You want to check that out on our website, monsterxradio.com. And again, I thank you for joining us, and we'll talk to you the next time.